Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wartum FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Our guests today are Alexis Pantasis and Emilios Marcao, co-founders of Hellas Direct, a digital-first, full-stacked insurance company located in Greece. Modeling itself on Amazon, Hellas Direct aims to disrupt the insurance value chain by adopting an extreme focus on operational excellence in data analytics. Hellas Direct was recently listed by the Financial Times as one of Europe's 1,000 fastest growing companies. The company is backed by a roster of leading investors, including Portage, the IFC from the World Bank, Endeavor Catalyst, and a number of world-renowned angel investors. Prior to Hellas Direct, Alexis and Emilios worked in a number of banking and management consulting roles at Barclays, Goldman Sachs, BCG, and McKenzie in London and New York City. And now please join me in an extremely interesting and entertaining conversation with Alexis and Emilios. Alexis, Emilios, thank you for joining us on the Wharton FinTech Podcast. We are extremely excited to have you here. Uh, can we start by hearing a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. Uh, so thanks for having us. Uh, it's a great pleasure joining you guys, even remotely. My name is Alexis, together with Emilios, we're the co-founders of Elas Direct, which is a neo-insurance company, as it is called these days, or a full-stack insurance company based out of Greece and expanding regionally in the coming few months. My personal background, I'm originally from Cyprus. I studied in the UK, Cambridge as my undergrad. I was a Wharton grad in 2005, class of 2005. Spent most of my career in, in finance. I was at Goldman Sachs. That's where I met Emilios. I was on the principal side of the firm. And back at the end of the last financial crisis, I guess, we decided to leave our jobs and set up the company. So uh, that's more or less my background. Have been living in Greece for the last seven, eight years and very excited to have this conversation. So thanks for the invite. Thanks, Miguel. You're lucky you have two Cypriots on a podcast. I mean, the probability of having that is really, really small, <laughs> given that we are a tiny island from Cyprus as well. I actually studied computer science 30 years ago before the internet was even a word. Then I followed the actuarial path. I qualified as an actuary in the UK. So I worked in um, sort of in the Lloyds of London kind of uh, complex network. And then I, I joined McKinsey. And I spent four or five years with McKinsey, both in the US and around Europe advising insurance companies. Then Goldman's, you know, on the insurance side of things, um, investment banking and uh, trading a bit. That's where I met Alexis. And I can uh, probably say the last 25 years of my life, I've been insurance from every possible angle whether it's consulting, uh, banking, or you know, now running our own insurance company. Fantastic. Well, we have a number of firsts on this show, uh, including first Cypriots and first uh, fintech company based in Greece. So it's, I think it's going to be a very interesting conversation. Uh, so tell us a little bit about Hellas Direct and how did the idea come about and why specifically car insurance? No, I think back in 2010, 2011, we we're both working in finance, as we said before, for our entire lives. And I think I knew nothing about insurance. I was on the principal side of Goldman Sachs, but I was doing mostly in the investment management space. And Emilio's convinced me that insurance is definitely a sector to start looking into. I think we synced up pretty well on a personal basis as well. We had both invested in different startups. 
some friends from Wharton, some friends from elsewhere. And we both started getting the itch to start something of our own. So when the financial crisis hit in 2008, 2009, we started seeing that, okay, there must be something for us to do here. As we said before, neither of us is from Greece. So Greece, we ended up in almost in a top-down McKinsey type of analysis way rather than anything else. And we realized that it's a huge opportunity because you could see that the country will blow up. The financial institutions at the time, we had 32 different banks. You could see that they were all insolvent. We ended up with four of them at the end of the crisis. We never really expected that the crisis would be as long and as deep as it ended up being, but it was always a contrarian play. So what we did with Emilius back then is we said, okay, well, if assuming that Greece does blow up and assuming that insurance is a place to start looking into, which are the sectors of insurance which are counter-cyclical? And car insurance is obviously one of them because ultimately everybody is obliged by law to buy car insurance, like in most countries. And if you want to build a brand from scratch and enter the market, it's probably the best time to do so. Now, a couple of decisions that we took from the very beginning, and I think they worked out really well for us. One of them is to actually build an insurance company. So not try to do a broker, an MGA, an agent of any sort, but actually control the whole value chain by being a fully regulated institution. By controlling the access to the regulator and by controlling your capital through reinsurance and all that makes you much more efficient and much more a ruler of your own destiny, for the lack of a better word. The second thing was try to build something which is technology enabled, which now is called full stack insurance writer and all these sexy terms that at the time didn't really exist. Because by controlling your technology, you're really building a competitive advantage, you're building an edge, you're building a moat, however you want to, to describe it. And I guess the third one, we looked with Emilio's, maybe we should think about acquiring somebody or build something from scratch as a greenfield. And when we looked at different companies here to acquire, we realized that it probably makes most sense to build a platform from scratch, grow even slowly in the beginning, but make sure you control that. And down the line, you can always think about acquisitions. But um, as a starting point, we looked at some of the local companies over here. They were tremendously inefficient. Some of them even fraudulent. You didn't really know what you were buying because if you bought that book, probably the brokers controlling that book would leave the next day. So looking at that, and that's kind of a, a lesson for us as we were starting, is better to start and design something from scratch. Um, do your best to make sure that it's scalable and it shows that it can actually support the growth rather than just hurrying in there and saying, oh, we're going to acquire somebody because that's a quick flip. I don't know, Emilius, if you want to add something to that. Yeah, on this one, I guess, white car insurance. I think for us, unlike some of the more recent kind of insured tech uh, launches, we went after two things, large enough market and profitable market. So for us, Greece is a two and a half, three billion US market dominated by motor insurance. If you put like the, the region around Greece, what we call kind of blind spot European markets, so anything to the right of Germany and touching the Mediterranean, that's probably another... 20, 30 billion. So it's quite a big market. But most importantly, it's very profitable. Unlike car insurance in the more developed markets where it's razor thin margins here, it's actually quite um, a thick margin business. Partly because capital doesn't flow freely, partly because of the inefficiencies of the local systems, and partly because, frankly, the big boys don't care about it. It's not by chance that you don't see the, the big, the, all of the big boys around here, the Allianzes, the Axas around here, not so much the US companies. But it's not like the focal point of their best people to come in and disrupt this kind of markets. Similarly, now with the fintech stories or insure tech stories, you don't get any kind of sexy news story coming to target this part of the world. So I think for us, we saw an opportunity to go and build a real company. As Alexis said, full stack, uh, fully regulated, in charge of our own destiny. Go after quite a big market, grow, but at the same time, make profits. We knew that in this part of the world, you cannot just live on a valuation of 50 times revenue. That doesn't really work here. 
And it could be that you get starved of capital and oxygen and you die a horrible death. So that's how we came up. To be fair, none of us were, even I didn't know working um, in Kardashian before. We did life savings. We did health uh, in the US. We did a lot of other kind of PNC stuff. But Motor was a first for us. But I guess there's always a first in insurance. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And it sounds like by starting from scratch, you avoided a lot of not just legacy systems, but also legacy yeah. mentality that can be even more yeah. harmful to an organization. Yeah. Tell us a little bit of how you approached building your okay. technology and operations. Before we started thinking about that one in 2012, 2013, when InsureTech wasn't around, it wasn't like as sexy and as popular as it is right now. But we started with kind of three principles. Really. The first one is that we know nothing about this thing. So I have a computer science major from 1993, irrelevant. Alexis never did anything in systems other than using systems from Goldman's or Credit Suisse. So we started from a blank piece of paper. Number two, we looked at probably 65, 70 systems from around the world, and none of them did the trick. It wasn't like a plug-and-play system out there to bring to Greece. And they were all written in old code. They were all kind of inflexible, and you would sign your life away to a 1990s kind of architecture. And thirdly, that's something that people sometimes forget about markets like Greece. The last mile can kill you. So it's fantastic to bring a system from the US. Good luck plugging it to the tax-paying API here in Greece. And it's not just the language translation, it's the process translation, it's everything else. So putting all, all that together, and then again, trying to remember with Alexis the frustrations we had at Goldman's, the frustrations we had at clients or McKinsey and so on. And we brought something you know, new to the table saying, guys, these are the fundamental principles of what we'd like to build. Before we even touch any stack or any you know, line of code and so on. So we brought things like um, single place for data, the ability to control the full value chain, not just pricing or fraud detection or claims, the entire thing, the ability to be distribution agnostic. So again, people talk a lot about these things, but, you know, uh, and they talk about if you know nothing about insurance, you know, uh, it's much better. We went the opposite route. We said we knew a lot about insurance, but let's leave all our, all our sacred cows outside the house and then start from scratch. So very quickly we came to the conclusion, we have to build it from scratch. And it's the decision that you take usually in your ha- and to build your own house. It's not that easy. <laughs> uh, you're definitely going to you know, beat up a few architects and engineers. But yeah, that's what we did. We hired some pretty good people from the beginning. We trusted a lot of senior developers we knew from the UK. We hired some very senior guys from here in Greece, and we started building our own system. Challenges, many. From the very beginning, how do you build the entire value chain while at the same time launching a company? The joke we had with Alexis was that we first built the new business module without the renewal because we, we knew that the renewals would come after a year. So we kind of had to build a claim system later on. But again, most of the challenges though were about getting good senior talent and not like a 21-year-old coming from university to help us put in place the dogma, the philosophy, the strategy around technology. And thank God, like six, seven years later, that paid us back. We now have an amazing team together. It was much easier later on to bring good people from London or from the US, repatriate some Greeks. And now we have about 50 engineers working in Greece and Cyprus for us. That's fantastic. So before, I want to ask you about uh, your uh, fundraising efforts. But before I go there, I would love to hear a little bit about your client base. How was the reception of your product when you launched? 
And, you know, do you think the client was ready just precisely at that time? Or could you have launched this a decade earlier? I think I'll kick this one off. The honest answer is you don't know what your clients want until you get started. And when we first came with Emilio's into the market, we said, okay, we're going to focus on the direct side of the business. In other words, bypass all the middlemen, come straight to the consumer, which is more or less the model that Direct Line and Admiral had done in the UK. And what I guess Geico has done quite successfully in progressing in the US. Now, from our perspective, we then realized that in, in Mediterranean markets, similar to Latin markets, I guess, people do appreciate the value of the broker or the agent. There is some sort of it's my second cousin, is a member of the family. I may not like him, but he is still adding some value to me. So gradually we realized that maybe the right angle here is not we're here to bypass the middleman, give you a cheaper rate, and we keep some profitability to keep investing in our technology to make your life better. But let's change the rhetoric a little bit and let's make sure that we follow and listen to what the consumer wants. So back to your question, had we been 10 years earlier, I think that would have been even more accentuated. Our timing in hindsight was very, very fortunate. And I think we've been quite lucky because we came in at the beginning of the financial crisis. So every single euro counted for the consumer. So the minute that you came in and you said, hey, I've got a different proposition for you, which is going to help you save some money and have better service, better product and better price, they were more eager to listen rather than if you came during the good times where people are like, I'm with Allianz, I will always be with Allianz and I don't care how much it costs. Now, what we have realized, though, through the years is that the consumer changes as well. And you've seen it even more emphatically during COVID now because you did have acceleration of the digitalization of the Greek consumer to the tune of six or seven times from the previous year, which is stuff that you haven't really seen in other markets. So back to that, I think there is a risk when you enter a market like Greece of being too early. There is a risk of coming with the wrong message, which is too Americanized or too English or too Anglo-Saxon in general. And I think the sooner you learn to listen to the consumer and adjust and adapt your message, I think the better it is. And I think, again, looking back in hindsight, I think we've been quite fortunate in that. How many customers do you have today? We've got about 180,000 customers in Greece, and this is on the insurance side. Last year, actually, we've done an acquisition of a road assistance business in Cyprus. It's the largest road assistance business there. We've got another 300,000 clients on the road assistance side. Got it. So you have been very successful at fundraising. You've actually captured investment from a number of international VC funds and hedge funds. Tell us a little bit about this journey and tell us about how did you convince investors to get comfortable with Greece? Because yep. for a while, this was almost uh, toxic material, if you will. It was painful, is the honest answer. Emilio's used to have black hair. I used to have much more hair. In the beginning, the bad thing about starting your own insurance company is that you need a lot of regulatory capital day one. So it's not just the two of us coding in a garage and we raise 100K and then 500K and off we go. Day one, we needed to raise something in the tune of eight to eight and a half million euros from investors. We were super naive in the beginning. We said that, okay, leaving Goldman Sachs and having Wharton and LBS and McKinsey on our resumes, you just the doors will open and the money will flood. In reality, we realized that Greek shipping guys, which was a primary target market, was definitely the wrong one. And we found that we had better appeal and a better chance of raising money from contrarian type of investors that have seen successes like what we've ended up doing in Greece in other markets. We reached out to a lot of people, mostly family offices at the time. VCs were always allergic to capital-heavy businesses. And this is all obviously too early for private equity. 
So we reached out to two and a half thousand people. We ended up meeting 300 of them in 14 different countries, which was uh, fun. And we ended up with 11 investors. So when you do the probability of that funnel, it's a painful one. But again, I think we've been quite fortunate because we found people that were either a very deep knowledge of microeconomics, like Jim O'Neill, who, is the chief, who was the chief economist of Goldman Sachs at the time, people that have done and have been involved in very successful, disruptive business and financial services, like John Moulton, who's one of our early investors, and a couple of local family offices that are very, very knowledgeable about Greece. So combination of all these guys was very, very supportive to us. Now, since then, we've raised additional money. So we've raised 24 million euros to date including institutional investors like the World Bank, the IFC is one of our investors, and Portage, which is the fintech arm of the Power Corporation of Canada. Now, back to your point, how did you convince these guys to come and invest? Well, two first-time entrepreneurs who are not from the country looking to set up a capital-heavy new business in a market that's about to blow up. So that was a tough sell. I think most people were intrigued by the contrarian nature of this. And this was not the investment pieces that everybody would say, oh, great, this is like real estate. You know that you're, if you get the timing right, you're going to make money. I think most of the people that backed us saw us as two people that if they survive the long winter, they'll be, they will have built something of value. And this was something that resonated with a lot of them. I remember specifically Jim O'Neill at some point told us that you know, when he coined the word BRICS, which was Brazil, Russia, India, China, as you know, personally, he actually invested quite aggressively at the time in Indonesia, which at the time was a bankrupt country, right? So a lot of people actually started saying, what the hell are you doing? And then fast forward five years, they were saying BRICS should have been BRICS, including Indonesia. So I think a lot of the investors that our message resonated with were people that said, well, Greece is not going to disappear. It's 11 million people. As Emilio said before, it's a big enough insurance market. All, it's in the blind spot of all the big guys. So if I believe that these guys are not going to, well, rip me off to start with and steal my money. But if these guys are legit and they go on the ground and they're smart enough to be able to adjust into the market and they're a bit lucky like any entrepreneur, then I'm going to make these proportional returns. And that's more or less what ended up happening. So I think through the years, we realized that family offices, especially sophisticated family offices, they tend to get what we were trying to do much better than the local family offices. And people that had experience emerging markets or blind spot markets were definitely a better fit for us than the more westernized kind of capital providers. That's super interesting. And we actually hear both sides of the story because sometimes we hear that convincing family offices, local family offices, can pay dividends because they're invested in the long-term success of the country. But at the same time, if they don't understand the type of asset class, the type of investment, then it's going to be more challenging for you as an entrepreneur. We saw it. We're part of the Endeavor Network. We're one of the companies that were selected in Endeavor in Greece. And through Endeavor, we made quite a few family offices in other markets as well, like Turkey, adjacent markets. I think there's a slightly different perspective here. I think Turkish family offices are thinking more long-term and they're vested in the long-term success of the country, as you rightly said. I think Greek family offices, because most of them make the money in shipping, which is a global industry, they tend to think more diversify away from Greece rather than invest in the long-term future of Greece. And especially at the time that we were setting up, you know, you could see that Greece was going to blow up. So a lot of these guys wanted nothing to do with Greece and wanted to figure out ways of diversifying the wealth elsewhere. Fascinating. So tell us a little bit more about your partners, because you cannot build an insurance company without some very important and key partners, right? How did you develop these relationships and who are these partners? Yeah, the starting point is that you don't need partners. You know, they would say partners that will get the license for you or you don't want to depend on partners, which could be an obstacle down the road. So sometimes 
fintech companies who jump the gun and say, okay, I'll, I'll go to bed with the following partners, a primary writer, an MGA manager. So you tend to sort of outsource most of your value chain and then you end up sort of uh, three, four years down the road when you're about to do magic, not be, you are effectively restricted by your own partners. So from that perspective, we made sure that we did not depend for our medium to long-term strategy on partners who would restrict us. So no primary writers, we had our own license. No big consulting firm, no tech developers, you know, no kind of long-term contracts, you know, with heavily lifting tech companies. Now, good partners at the very top and at the very bottom. So at the very top are the reinsurance companies. I think reinsurance companies is something that is fundamental to the operation of our own sector. So if you access good capital from the likes of Swiss Re, Munich Re, Hanover, all those guys, you can actually get to the market much faster. You don't need to tap a lot of expensive capital from the likes of VCs and, and private equity and so on. And to be fair, these insurance companies do get the market. They have long-term data, they understand some of the catastrophic risks, and they can partner with you to access the market. They are also going through a philosophical existential question because they are already reinsuring your competitors. And here they are giving you capital to go and destroy your competitors. So they are also going through some come-to-Jesus moments from, from their side. But to be fair, if you were partnered with them, that's what we did. We partnered with both Munich and Swiss at the beginning. And provided that you don't screw them in the early years, so you deliver good loss ratios, good underwriting performance, then you have a lifelong partner. So I think our um, conclusion and our advice to other companies, as you are sort of uh, setting up things and you control your own destiny, your own universe, turn to reinsurance companies early on, but don't try to kind of uh, screw them up because... It's a small world. And I think, you know, let's say we delivered a loss ratio of about 150 or 200% massively loss making for the insurance companies, you end up sort of losing a friend for life. Now, at the very bottom, who are our partners, garages, last mile, because that's where we think the consumer will feel our product. You know, we are in the business of paying claims. We sell a promise, but the actual product is at the very end, and only 10% of your, or maybe 20% of your clients will feel it. So, you owe it to them that you have a wow experience at the very end. So for us, we spend an endless time you know, locking these 1,400 garages from around Greece and another 500 in Cyprus locked on into our system. They're all online, real time. We can pay them, talk to them, you know, detect fraud. But the whole thing is to make sure that these last mile solutions deliver a wow experience for the consumer. And we've done a partnership with Revolut so we can pay claims instantly. We, we've done partnerships with gas stations, with you know, uh, local kind of e-commerce companies and so on. And I think this is where sometimes fintech companies or even insurance tech companies, they um, gloss over. They come up with a global solution saying, hey, I'm, you know, you're going to use my app around the world. I said, have you thought about this last mile? And this last mile in Greece is totally different to you know, the last mile in Germany and so on. Good luck getting your Amazon package delivered in Greece if the last mile hasn't been clearly fought by Amazon. So back to your question, partners at the very top, at the very bottom, the rest in the middle, we are self-contained, <laughs> if you like. Got it. Got it. Self-sufficient at the middle. And what channels are you using to reach the consumer, to capture the initial consumers, right? On this one, we obviously started with direct-to-consumer, and we managed to hit the court with some evangelists, I would say, that were from the startup kind of the universe and there were much more the innovators in the market that would actually buy from us and tell other people about us and all that and again the value proposition day one was a better product better price and better service so it kind of resonated with a lot of these guys 
But then we realized that this is a very small market. And obviously, you cannot compete with the above-the-line budgets of the big guys around here and going, you know, mass TV day one and things like that. And it was also against our nature. We're both quants kind of people. So, you know, just flooding crazy money on TV just didn't feel right. So we tried to almost think about how do we reach more consumers by engineering? The acquisition of road assistance was one of them. Um, we, you tap into a much broader audience just because everybody, as Emilio said before, is ignoring that last mile. At the same time, we figure out that doing B2B2C type partnerships with airlines, retailers, gas stations, telcos, even banks, that's something that definitely worked for us because you could plug and play with a product that everybody needs. Uh, nobody really wants to buy because it's a grudge buy to buy insurance. But at the same time, teaming up with brands that people love and getting into the loyalty scheme was definitely important. The last thing that we did, and we launched it actually last year, about a year ago, was most of the market is still very much physical. So it's still very much the physical brokers and agents that you see in some markets back 20 years with a leather briefcase on a moped trying to sell insurance. So giving these guys a digital product was something that we ended up doing and is actually going really well because 80% of the market is still distributed through that. So you can either take the view that I'm going to be the digital disruptor and just stay in that universe and wait until everybody digitalizes. Or you can say, you know what, I'm distribution agnostic. I'm very efficient as a factory of products. And now let me open it up to everybody. Different brand, different pricing, different everything. But at the end of the day, we manage the claims. We manage the whole backend, if you like, on that side. And this is something that has worked for us. So when you look at our business right now, about 50% of it is through digital B2B2C type of partnerships. And about 50% of it is still physical brokers, but we actually run it much, much more efficiently than the traditional insurance companies. Now, let's talk a little bit about people and culture. At the end of the day, this is a show run by MBAs. So management of a company really is something that we talk about a lot. You are a company with multiple employees. How do you recruit the best talent? And once you have someone join, what kind of culture will they find within the company? As you can see, we're co-running things. So we constantly complement each other. Um, That's excellent. That's excellent. So back to your point. This is a challenge that any insurtech company is facing these days. We had the conversation with Lemonade, with Root, with Metromile, all of these guys. We have exactly the same problems. On the one hand, you're a fully regulated financial institution where you need people like finance, regulatory reporting, data science, and all that stuff. And at the same time, you're a startup and you want to have the jazziness of a startup continue as you grow. And that's a little bit of a challenge. In our case, we've got 127 people right now. These 127 people are split between Greece and Cyprus. We have an office in Athens, an office in Nicosia. And the range is the whole lot. Anything from PhDs and crazy stuff, all the way down to a stand-up comedian and car specialist that can fix your Beamer remotely. So how do you get these people to work in a unified culture? And how do you get these people to work together? We took some decisions with Emilio's early on. We sat down and we said, from all the companies that we worked on, what are the things we didn't like? What are the things that we liked? We came down with three kind of very generic characteristics of what are the things that we want every single recruit in the last direct to have. And it's really somebody who's smart, not necessarily academically smart, but smart in picking things up. The second one is we wanted people that are passionate about something, um, especially in a market like Greece. It's important to keep that drive going, which in other places you find it naturally, like Silicon Valley and all that, not necessarily in Greece. And the third one is people that are optimistic and believe that if given the opportunity, they can really change the world or have that drive to, to change things. And again, that's not as easy to find in a market like Greece. As Emilio said before, in technology guys, we tend to bring them from abroad. 
So as Greeks and Cypriots have worked in London and the U.S. before, at the age of 30, they want to come back. So we, we have a very good relocation program. We go and hunt them, really, <laughs> and we bring them back. And things like COVID and things like Brexit are definitely working in our favor. We always approach them with a, a photo of Santorini with a nice sun and the sea and all that. So that's an easy sell. But some of the people we have to hire and develop ourselves from universities and all that. A decision that we've taken early on is that we don't tend to hire from other insurance companies. You're entering a market that you're trying to disrupt. So you don't want people to bring the legacy thinking from the more traditional insurance companies. So we'd rather get somebody who is a smart whiz kid, just finished from university, come in, join us, and we train them hard to get the way of the world as we see it, rather than getting a very senior person from AIG who comes here with all the legacy kind of thinking that goes with it. And this is a bet that I think has worked out for us. Now, a last thing, I guess, from my side is that we have been fortunate enough to be awarded as a best workplace. We do a lot of the things that you would expect from an early stage company, the pizza Friday, the breakfast club every Friday, the, even now during COVID, after we had some relaxation, although we haven't gone back to the office, we've organized like picnics and drinks and all that. But I think from our perspective, we're reaching the point where it's very important to be thoughtful about how we expand and grow to make sure that we're scalable. And that is we're entering into the scale-up world rather than startup world. And that's slightly different in terms of the skills that are needed and, and the time that the two of us need to dedicate to this. Emilia, do you want to talk a little bit more about the culture? Yeah, I think that from a cultural perspective, the difference here is that you're going to hire people who want to make a difference in this part of the world. And this is not a case where we're going to set up a team here to service Silicon Valley or, you know, have like a base here and thing outside. This is someone who wants to come here and change the financial services market in Greece and the region. And it's not a case where, hey, I'm Lemonade, I will take 1% of the market and then eventually somebody like, you know, Geico, you know, my thing about buying me here. So we will become a top insurance company and that's the plan. So it's a slightly different ask. So it's a much different ask. <laughs> and, you know, you, you're coming into a market where, is heavily disrupted and you're about to create a financial service institution that will dominate uh, the market going forward. We definitely agree with what the Lemonade guys are saying about, you know, companies who will dominate in the 21st century will be born in the 21st century. And again, that's something that we follow as well. Having said that, you know, in this region uh, or regions like Greece and sort of Eastern Europe or Gulf, I think then the challenge, or if you like, that they ask for our employees is to think about their lives in the next 10 years and to see themselves as the leaders of the market, not just somebody who's going to be disrupting the boundaries and you know, optimizing some part of the value chain. And that takes a lot of education, a lot of sort of mentoring, a lot of guidance from us because, you know, these are brilliant minds. You know, we are fortunate to get some of the best people around here or people who actually have spend five, 10 years abroad, but to come back and get them to sort of synchronize together to go in and change this market forever. It's partly, you know, you know technocratic. It's partly kind of you know, changing the way we do stuff, but also mentality of getting out there and challenge the entire market. Fascinating. It sounds like it's not only beneficial for the company, but also the ecosystem. And on, on that point, tell us a little bit about the entrepreneurial ecosystem in Greece. Okay. It's picking up. Uh, when we first came here in 2012, I think it was kind of a, it was an unknown world. And Greece was about to enter into what is now the, the longest recession in the history of Western economics. But that led to a lot of people kind of asking a more fundamental question. What am I doing here? You know, I'm a good engineer. I have some ideas. What shall I do? 
And we saw two reactions within this sort of ecosystem. The first one was, let me set up a company in Greece to do exports or to solve global problems. And that was the first reaction that Greece was a very small market and, you know, have a, have a dream and, you know, I can have 10, 15, 100 sort of developers in Greece and I can go and challenge the global ecosystems. That one didn't go that well because, frankly, we're not as cheap as we thought we were compared to some other, and we're not as good as we thought we were. But we, that actually gave rise to some companies that took on good valuations, exited quickly, solved some regional problems, whether it's in the food delivery market or in sort of taxi hailing and stuff like that, that gave rise to some confidence, if you like. Plus, a lot of Greeks have left Greece, go to Silicon Valley, to Berlin, and so on, and get themselves kind of hooked up into the sort of global world. But to be fair, we don't expect our ecosystem to dominate or kind of, this is not going to be the next Berlin or the next Tel Aviv, by no means. Now, the second one, which I guess is much more healthy and has started much more actively in the last three, four years, and we're part of that movement, if you like, is fixing Greece and fixing the region. Say, okay, I'm going to set up Greece's best insurance company. I'm going to set up Greece's best bank. I'm going to set up... And there, we think with Alexis that it's going to start with financial services because coming out of the crisis, you need to fix financial services, both lending, you know, deposit taking, SMEs, insurance, and so on. And it will slowly trickle down into other parts of the market. That, we think, is a much more fundamental you know, ecosystem and something that can take off. Unfortunately, this is where we disagree with the principles. Greece will never give rise to a unicorn. Or it's very, very, I would say, an outlier if something like this happens. However, this is a sort of place that you can invest tens of millions and get companies around, you know, four, five hundred, six hundred million valuation comfortably. And again, it depends on the risk return profile of the ecosystem sponsors, how they see this ecosystem. If somebody comes to Greece and says, hey, I'm Sequoia, hey, I'm from Index, and I'm betting in Greece for the next global unicorn, I think they're wasting their time. They might hire from Greece, they might get people from the ecosystem to work. We have some brilliant people, but as far as you can go, but for someone to come here, maybe a private equity who wants to make two, three, four, five X and invest sort of low tens or sort of low hundreds and get someone to sort of operate around the half a unicorn level. I think that's where we think that the sweet spot of Greece is. And not just Greece, I think the entire region around here. So yeah, I think it's going to be super exciting, especially now post-COVID. We'll come back to it later. I think we have one of the questions for COVID later, but I think that for us, this is the most exciting part of the ecosystem right now. Yeah, fascinating and good to learn about the Greek ecosystem. But how about the road ahead? I mean, you mentioned that you don't think there'll be a lot of unicorns coming out of Greece, but you potentially could either expand into different types of insurance within Greece, or you could expand to cover the rest of the continent, right? And that could potentially propel you in a different valuation. How do you envision your road ahead? Yeah, I think for us, and it's obviously a big strategic question that we had to address, especially when the World Bank invested in us, because the IFC is actually invested in 800 banks globally. I think they control 13% of the banking stock in globally, especially in the frontier economy. So I think for us, the question was, okay, guys, if we're going to leave Greece and Cyprus, where are we going to go? And just tell us where, and we'll set up meetings, and you go visit, and all that. And I think both Emilius and I were quite patient with that question. And we said, look, guys, we're still quite small in Greece. We only have a two, two and a half percent market share. We're in a good trajectory to get to a 10% and become a top five insurance company. And that gives you a very good position in the market where, you know, you are a cash cow. By that time, you're probably in the 250, 300 million euro revenue company. 
with a valuation double that or even triple that, and you're making a very good bottom line of 30, 40 million. So once you build that moat and you strengthen and consolidate your position in the Greek market and the Cyprus market, we think that that's the point to start thinking about regional expansion. We've already doing some baby steps on that, and maybe we will accelerate our growth by an organic move because there's a lot of people now, as we said, Greece being a blind spot market, a lot of the big insurance companies are thinking, maybe I should leave Greece now, leave markets like Greece and strengthen my presence in my core markets or high growth. We've seen the same trends from AIG in the past, from AXA, Allianz. They're all thinking, you know, what am I doing there if I'm not in the top three kind of thing? So for us, back to the question is, we definitely want to strengthen our position in the Greek and Cyprus market. We want to be a top five or top three, I would say, in both of these markets. And that would be across insurance, services, and lead generation. That's how we see our wealth as an insure tech player. And then we're going to start thinking about international expansion. And on the international side, I don't think we'll go to Germany or Italy or Spain anytime soon. I think we will always focus on markets that smell and look like Greece. So blind spot, ignored by the big guys. But if you put them all together, you have another Germany. So the Balkans, the Central Eastern Europe part of Europe is probably a very interesting market for us. Potentially Portugal from the, again, Southern Mediterranean kind of markets and definitely the Middle East. And we're still kind of toying around what is our entry strategy in each one. But, you know, in the next 12 to 18 months, I think we'll put a little flag on two, three other markets. One last thing that, again, is more of a soft MBA-ish aspirational kind of vision that both Emilio's and I have. I think this part of the world, there's a need of role models and there's need of companies that are going to have the same transformational effect as you've had in the Silicon Valley in the 60s with Fertile Semiconductors or with PayPal later on. And I think we do have a great opportunity as a last direct to generate a number of other companies adjacent to us or former employees of ours that set up their own thing and all that. And that is something that is missing. So I think looking back at it 10 years from now, both me and Emilius, I think we'll be super happy if we can actually say, yes, we did what we said we were doing Greece and Cyprus. Take, we conquered the whole ecosystem. We're doing really well. We've expanded to other markets in the region and we're now present and much more visible as a regional player. And also, we had this PayPal effect, an ecosystem like the Greek ecosystem. So I think that would be would make the two of us definitely very, very happy. Look forward to seeing a Hellas Direct Mafia. <laughs> <laughs> so how about the impact of COVID? This is obviously the elephant in the room. Yeah. It's impacted every yeah. single country, company, and individual. Uh, how has it impacted your business and your consumers? The moment COVID hit, we kind of, uh, I remember at the beginning of March, Alexis sat in the room thinking, what's going to happen right now? And we kind of went through every single plan we had, every single sort of matrix we had, and uh, we couldn't find anything negative about it. We knew that everything was going to be disaster from an economy perspective, tourism, travel, and so on. But as far as our plan was concerned, as far as our metrics were concerned, it was a blessing in disguise. So we kind of mapped COVID into sort of three dimensions. The first one was day-to-day -day organic business. Blessing, why? Because... People stopped driving, people stopped crashing, and suddenly we, we were left with all the premium that we had received or were receiving, and there you know, was a huge margin because of COVID. As a result, we were the first company actually pan-European to come up with a COVID discount. We call it stay-home discount, where anyone who bought or renewed during COVID, we gave them a month for free. And because we can price by the day, we can you know, insure cars by the day, We could actually you know, launch it immediately to you know, our entire ecosystem and people sort of loved it. Clearly, it was before the U.S. companies started giving cash away and so on. But at the same time, again, under the first uh, dimension, 
we saw a huge shift towards digitalization. So things that we we're expecting to see in you know, three, four years, were, they were happening. I mean, everyone around the digital ecosystem was recording new highs or new records in terms of client acquisition. And for us, you know, we, man, a year on year, we were growing sort of around 85, 90%, which was things that we you know, couldn't expect. The second thing we observed was that because we were digital in the way we were operating, we could get our 127 people in Greece and another 60 people in Cyprus home. And within 24 hours, they could start working from home. And you know, we, we saw our competitors scrambling to get uh, laptops. You know, one of our major competitors has 1,000 people. They realized they only have 35 laptops. So it was the whole you know, mechanics, logistics of getting people to work from home. You know, it was much, much simpler for us to such a, an extent that we were blessed to have you know, 108, 190 people actually within 24 hours working from home. And the third one is touching to what Alex was saying earlier. We're now seeing our competitors retreating from our territories. So the likes of Valiant, Axan, General, and so on, they have so many and so big problems at home or in sort of in their core markets. They're now defending those. And we see them less and less sort of eager or aggressive in the market that we operate. To such an extent that for us right now, we're in the process of acquiring some of those books. And some of the inorganic plants we had have been accelerated significantly. So for us, although most of our shareholders love to talk about lifetime value and CAC and all this wonderful stuff about digitalization, here comes the big elephant in the room, like suddenly a big company leaving their keys behind and we pick it up. So I think probably a blessing for us, yes, across all three dimensions. Unfortunately, we will end up being in a situation where we will see a, a protracted and a very deep recession around us. And what Alexis touched upon earlier, the proof that insurance, especially personalized insurance, does really, really well in negative sort of downturns, we'll prove it again. And you know, given the extent of the downturn, you know, our success will be even sort of higher. But we cannot ignore what will be happening around us for the next year or so, which will be you know, quite miserable for a lot of people. It sounds like you were absolutely as ready as you can be for this type of shock. Well, Emilio, Alexis, we, we have quite a few listeners who are either entrepreneurs or aspiring founders. I know you two have been longtime listeners, which is uh, an honor for us. Can you share some of your lessons and some of your reflections as entrepreneurs? Particularly, you have this very unique point of view that you've done it in a market where that's not very common and where there isn't a Silicon Valley type of ecosystem. So, you know, we're very curious to hear about that. I'll kick it off and then pass it on to Emilio. So I'm sure we have different perspectives on this. First lesson for me was that look into a market that nobody else is looking. And especially when you graduate from an MBA school, especially a top one like Warden, you start thinking about where are all my classmates going? And there's a little bit of a herd mentality. I think two, three years out from business school, you start thinking that, well, where are the real opportunities? And it's not as straightforward as saying, let's all go to Silicon Valley. I think markets like Greece, markets like you know, the broader region around here are starved for good talent. And that's where there's an opportunity to set up really disruptive companies. The caveat there, it's much more difficult to get going because the capital markets are not as efficient. You don't have a lot of VCs chasing you around. You don't have the next generation. The minute you do well, you don't have the next uh, kind of late stage VC or early stage private equity to pick you up. So a lot of the things that you have to do here, you have to do with the assumption that you're probably not going to raise another round. 
which is contrarian to what most startups in on the West Coast are thinking. The third thing I would say is that things always take longer and are always much more volatile in markets like this than what perhaps you expect. But again, so what are the lessons for any entrepreneur? I think is consistent with any entrepreneur around the world is resilience. The highs are higher, the lows are lower and all these cliches. But at the end of the day, I think in markets like Greece, I think the minute you set your little moat and you're protected, I think you're in a very, very, very good place. So I would definitely urge people to start looking at blind spot markets and start looking at industries that are not sexy enough in the, in the broader definition of the world. I don't know, Emilios? Yeah, I'll pick that from the last part, Alex. Find something that you really like. You're going to be doing this for at least you know, a few years, call it seven, 10 years, but find something that makes you tick. We love insurance. We love solving problems in insurance. We love insurance combines uh, consumer-related stuff, marketing, uh, quantitative analytics, pricing, fraud detection, so all the stuff. So if you don't have the passion for it, you know, if you catch yourself doing it because it's cool or because you know your platform is doing it, then clearly it's not going to go a long way. And also, like I said, find the not-so-sexy stuff. Because unfortunately, people coming out of MBAs, they would go for careers or for you know, startups that are kind of sexy for their classmates. We've seen that but, you know, when, you, when you talk to classmates at MBAs, usually we'll go for last year's sexy career. You know, if it's LBOs, if it's private equity, usually something that is already past its peak. And people tend to ignore the real opportunities out there. I remember when I was at McKinsey, it was you know, super cool to work for McKinsey US insurance. I remember in China, there were like literally two people serving a company called Ping An. 20 years later, you think like, you know, why wasn't that there? And, you know, similarly to what we are doing right now with Alexis, is that follow your, uh, your gut instinct and follow the real opportunity because you're building a business, you're not building a business plan. Mm-hmm. And I think this is where people tend to get, and I'm not saying that it's the wrong thing to do to follow a hype because a lot of people made money from hypes and a lot of people managed to, you know, get a lot of good returns from a momentum thing. But these are two different things. You know, go and build a business that has, Top line, bottom line has balance sheet. It has a decent structure and it's built for the you know, long run and valuation will come. Don't build a business plan because some VC or some private equity guy thinks it's hot. You may get away with it, but gravity can only be sort of uh, <laughs> uh, cheated upon for like a, you know, a few seconds. So that's one of the things that we are advising people to do and not to be sort of, uh, you know, one of the things that you know, infuriates both of us, you know, somebody calling Greece or um, you know, Eastern Europe like a small market. Uh, you guys, seriously, <laughs> how much of a market do you need to, to move? And, and the final point, I think, is you have to almost kind of believe in your own powers, in your own abilities to go and make things happen. It's irrespective of the market, irrespective of what state they are. Follow your passion and things will happen. I think a couple more things just, uh, Milos just touched upon it briefly, is that in markets like this one, um, because it's a longer and more volatile kind of journey, as we said, um, the importance of the co-founder is even more important. I think you, you often fall into the trap when you're thinking of a startup that you're within two years, you will you know, become the next Zuckerberg or whatever it is. And you don't realize that you know, it takes a long time and it takes a lot of painful moments to set up any business. And I have a lot of respect about entrepreneurs, successful or otherwise globally, for taking that leap. But I think having a co-founder that is very much aligned with you, especially in markets like Greece, is super, super important. I think what we've been quite fortunate, both Emilia and myself, is that we complement each other quite finely. And also, 
we had to go through such hardship in order to get the company up that we solved a lot of our um, esoteric issues uh, early on. The second thing I would argue is that it's sometimes easier to set up a business in a market which is not your home market. The fact that we are not from Greece, although we understand the culture and the language, gave us a little bit more freedom. I think had we been from here, you always feel, and it's more evident in Mediterranean and Latin countries, um, you always feel the pressure that, oh, my classmate from school is doing this or that or the other. Coming in as an immigrant effectively into this market gives you a little bit more of a liberal way of thinking, and you can challenge the establishment much more. So if you're building in a challenger kind of business model, definitely doing it in a country that is not your own has its advantages. As they say, no one is a prophet in their own land. Uh, <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> Alexis, uh, Emilios, this has been a, an absolute treat. Thank you for joining us. Before we go, we do want to hear about some of your hobbies outside of uh, Hellas Direct and how you spend some of that time. Emilia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, uh, I love music. I play piano, guitar. I used to, during my university years, I, I made a lot of money from playing in various Greek tavernas around London and, uh, and Manchester. And uh, well, actually, we, when the lockdown happened, we had this idea with Alexis to play effectively a, a Greek song, each one of us at home, and then put it all together. And actually, the first company that did this, and uh, well, as we were kind of putting this thing together, like we realized, oh, shit, we've got like 20 people who are, you know, professional musicians around here. So, yeah, now um, I'd like to spend even more time doing sort of some uh, random sessions with you all at Helastareg. And maybe next year you will hear about the Helastareg band, you know, and our, <laughs> <laughs> and our rocking ex expeditions. I'll look Alexis. for it on iTunes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good luck to us on another one. Uh, yeah. No, at my end, I mean, other music is... Uh, I recently picked up tennis again after many, many years, so I'm very proud of that. Three kids at home, so that obviously doesn't allow a lot more free time. But I think both Emilia and I spend quite a bit of time with uh, entrepreneurs that set up their own business, in, uh, at least in Greece, or people that we know randomly. So on this one, any of your classmates that is at some point thinking of a business plan, either in insurance or something that they think that we can be of value, by all means, drop a line, you know, LinkedIn or whatever, and we try to find the time and give back as much as we can to entrepreneurs. So I think that's a little bit of a soft spot to us. And if you're lucky, you get a song from us as well. So there we go. <laughs> <laughs> no, excellent. Excellent. Well, guys, thank you again for joining us. Thanks uh, for the invite, Mikael. We, we Thanks, Mikael. learned a lot. And this has been just, uh, just great. Well, Super you know, we'll hope best. to see you around campus sometime. We'd love to. Take Stay safe and we'll speak soon. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.